When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today we are here to talk to Dr. Christopher Ball, who is an assistant professor teaching South Asian history at Durham University in the UK. And he works on the social, cultural, and political histories uh, of the early modern Western Indian Ocean world and studies them through its surviving manuscript cultures. And today's book, Scribal Practice and the Global Cultures of Colophones Between 1400 to 1800, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022, is also co edited with uh, Professor Stephen Hans, who uh, teaches early modern history at the University of Manchester in the UK. Scribal practice and the global cultures of colophones is the first to chart the global diversity of colophones between 1400 and 1800. The volume presents a new approach to scribal cultures that extend traditional definitions, moving from the paradigm of cardiological information towards a thorough interpretation of the wider social worlds of colophones in Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. This volume uncovers the fascinating cultural history of early modern scribes. Chapters examines how those engaging in the composition and distribution of colophones shape scribal identities, group cultures, and bookish communities in a world in which manuscripts mattered. Authors built on approaches from anthropology, cultural studies, cardiology, history, and philology to offer a new conceptual framework that studies colophones as scribal practices embedded in their changing social and cultural worlds. As a new contribution to the history of the book, this volume's global approach pushes the boundaries of what constitutes a colophon. Welcome to Chris to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. We would like first to learn about our authors uh, and co-editors, 
Can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any influential mentors or readings along the ways. Yeah, thank you. So I was born in, in Germany, in Munich. I grew up in Germany, went to school in Germany, but um, I also lived in other countries, in Japan, in South Korea, Russia. It is due to my parents' work. Um, and so I got interested in learning new languages at school, I think. Um, and when I finished school, the most interesting field for me seemed to be um, Arabic studies, Islamic history, and South Asian history. So I started studying those um, topics or subjects and languages at Heidelberg. Um, I spent time abroad in Syria and in India to do language courses in Arabic and Urdu, and then moved on to, to SOAS in London to do another MA and my PhD. And I think my most important mentor was um, my doctoral supervisor, Konrad Hirschler, um, who was really crucial in developing my PhD project, uh, helping me develop my PhD project on Arabic manuscript circulation. And that was sort of the, the crucial basis for the volume um, that that uh, Stefan Hans and I put together with several colleagues. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, we can move now to the books and its chapters. The book is divided in 11 chapters, including the introduction that you've co-authored with Professor uh, Stevens. Can you please um, let us know how your work in your dissertation uh, titled Histories of Circulation, Sharing Arabic Manuscripts Across the Western Indian Ocean between 1400 to 1700 have shaped your understanding and uh, conceptual interactions with the notion of coliforms over the years? Yes. So I started uh, thinking about the dissertation topic in uh, 2013. And in the beginning, um, I looked a lot at manuscript catalogs and entries which described uh, content, manuscript notes, and marginalia of manuscripts. Um, and from my studies in, in Heidelberg, I was very much influenced by literary criticism. Um, and I read um, Gérard Genet. So I thought um, a great way of looking at manuscripts was by looking at um, looking at manuscripts through the categories set out by Gérard Genet, which are paratext. And that's something that um, more and more scholars have done over the last decade. One influential work is by Ronald Ritchie, for example. She looks at Japanese manuscripts and looks at uh, paratext in those manuscripts. So while I started with catalogs, I then moved on to manuscript collections during my fieldwork in, in India. And I looked at hundreds of different of hundreds of colophons um, over time. Colophons became a crucial way of anchoring um, my, my argument or anchoring the manuscripts that I looked at in a social and also in a cultural world. Um, Arabic colophons, in particular, colophons in Arabic manuscripts can be very formalized, but scribes to have a lot of space to um, have agency to to change the composition of those colophons. Well, and after some time, I, um, I felt that all those people who copied those manuscripts that I talked about, manuscripts that circulated, that were stored in royal libraries, um, that were exchanged between scholars, um, 
that those people actually um, mattered a, a great deal. Uh, they were usually considered as the people who proliferated the manuscripts, who copied it, and therefore we have that manuscript. But um, I also started considering them as as readers of manuscripts, and um, members of a of a learned community who who have a knowledge of the book they copied, and not simply as the as the labor that creates the manuscript. So I asked Stefan Hans, who works on early modern Europe, um, if he would be interested in, um, well, setting up a workshop where we talk to colleagues about what they think about conifers from from their from from their background, from their fields. And we realized after some time that actually um, conifers uh, in different manuscript cultures um, um, have a very crucial cultural aspect of, of manuscripts and can actually can tell us a lot of, about the social history of, of books. Um, so in particular, striking was the work by David Zakarian, who um, added or contributed a chapter on Armenian manuscripts in our book, but then also other uh, colleagues like Pera Panarud, who looked at CME's manuscript cultures uh, Baskan, who looked at Muslim scribal culture in India in around 1800, and especially at manuscripts of the Delhi collection, she used the colophon to identify the scribe and identify um, collection of or a scholarly collection of that particular scribe. So I think that's how my my doctoral work um, formed sort of a, a basis for an idea to, uh, about colophons because I encountered a lot of colophons during my research. And then I had Stefan as a great collaborator, and um, our contributors to this to this volume as a great community to discuss those, um, to discuss conifers and to discuss scribal practice with you. Thank you for giving us this overview of, of the volume and, and your research. Uh, but before delving deeper and talking about colophons, uh, can you give us uh, an understanding of the diversity of colophons in different cultures? Are we speaking about the same thing or different things? Uh, that's uh, that's a good question. I think that's one of the questions that we were not able to to fully answer. So I think um, whereas um, Stefan came to this project with a with very much maybe a more European Renaissance understanding of of conifers, and I had my understanding of, of Arabic uh, conifers. Uh, we all had very different understandings of what a conifer looked like, how what information it it included um, what sort of social significance or cultural significance it had. Um, we we thought about the term scribal practice to bring all these different things together. In in general, I would still emphasize that a polyphon is a is a way for a person to end a text, um, to mark a text, um, and to inscribe himself herself usually or very often it's himself in in the cases that we looked at into this text or into a manuscript copy um yeah thank you for that explanation and uh as somebody who works on um manuscript produced uh, in the western indian ocean but the on the on the other side not on the south asian side but between arabia and east africa uh the colophons that i'm working with they look quite different from the south asian ones, although they are in the same, let's say, pond in the Western Indian Ocean, and there's a quite diversity even within 
let's say a given culture or or so-called cultures uh, of Arabic uh, manuscripts. Um, but what we find in the in the in the scholarship or by historians is that we fo- we focus on the authors, and very few of us would actually go and look at the many manuscripts produced, copying that original, uh, let's say, work. Um, what do we miss by uh, overlooking the production of manuscripts uh, around a given work and writing the history of the region? Um, so on the one hand, I think that's, it, it, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, what we, what we would miss. So I think on the one hand, the scribes or copyists, um, as I stated earlier, are an important part of the reading community or of the audience of the manuscript. Um, so they are the people who actually shape the, shape the book manuscripts or shape the manuscript culture, um, in an artistic way. Um, but also in terms of, um, in terms of making available texts to other people. Um, they're also crucial when we look at forms or frameworks of transmission. So they're crucial to ensure the soundness of a, of a text or of a copy um, of a text. So they actually put a lot of labor into creating that text. Now, of course, conifans are, are very different. You're absolutely right. They're not, um, even within the Arabic manuscripts that I looked at, they, they come in different uh, shapes and forms. So sometimes uh, the scribes or the scholars who copied um, copied those manuscripts, they give us snippets of of information about where they copied the text, or what their family background is, what their scholarly background is, what their matab um, affiliation is, and so on. So, I think um, while individual conifans are um, are fascinating because they give us some information about an individual we otherwise wouldn't know about. If we look at many colophons collectively um, or cumulatively, then we're actually able to use those colophons as, as social archives and to actually write about um, communities that we don't really see otherwise because those communities or professionals don't didn't or did not create their own um, prosopographies like like Stonis, for example, did in the early modern period. Um, so it's actually what we would miss by overlooking the colophon is we would miss a lot of social and cultural history that we can write. Indeed, uh, in your introduction to the to the volume, you call the colophon a social act. What do you mean by that? And what are some of the manifestations of the colophon as a social act? Um, so, a social act. I think we also referred to other scholars who who used it in a who used that phrase as well or in a similar way. What I understand by it is, I came from, came to to that from from the perspective of looking at many manuscripts, some of which had colophons and others who didn't have that didn't have man um, colophons. So, for me, the fact that a scribe included. Uh, their name at the end of the manuscripts meant meant something because uh, in some cases when we look at um, lexicography, for example, or dictionary, Arabic dictionaries um, in India, sometimes um, scribes didn't include their names um, but produced two large volumes of a lexicographical work. 
So maybe in that case, it was not considered to be important. Maybe it wasn't allowed for the scribe to include, to include their name. But in other instances where that happened, I think it's a, it is a social act because that person who, who signs off the manuscript considers themselves, themselves crucial um, in the production of the manuscript, maybe intends to um, write himself into a scholarly genealogy um, and definitely wants to be wants to be remembered or, or respected as the person who who copied that manuscript. So the social act in, in my case was revealing oneself uh, as, as part of the, the production of that book. The, Some might say that uh, coffins are uh, formulaic. They are, uh, let's say, mechanistic almost. They don't really convey um, a given, let's say, expression of identity beyond a collective identity that people are used to reproducing through textual production. What would you say about that? Um, I do think that in, in many cases, um, colophons are formulaic. Um, and they are formulaic because there are certain um, traditions that might that a, a scribe probably followed. There are certain, for example, the, what, is, what makes those colophons easily identifiable, often in Arabic manuscripts, is the shape of the triangle uh, that the, the text has. Um, so it's also, um, and that is in a way, in a way, um, standardized uh, phrases that are used are, are formulaic. But precisely because um, a scribe wants to show um, that he adheres to a certain etiquette of of transmission, to a certain to a certain uh, type of book culture, um, and to show that that one has has mastered. Um, maybe a certain professional standard. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that formulaic necessarily means that that makes them less less meaningful or, or significant. Um, especially when we, when we, I have one colophon um, that I found where, which has, um, which uses um, formulae that appear in several other colophons as well. Um, so that, gives me an, an an additional indication of where that colophon might have been produced if um, scribes probably knew each other or knew off each other and so on. So, yeah, it's um, the formulaic doesn't make it less meaningful. It tells us something, I think. I agree with you. Uh, talking about the chapters, the chapter cover uh, a broad geography and different regions and cultures of colophons from the Middle East, Europe to Africa. And South Asia. Um, can you tell us about how did you bring, uh, along with uh, Stevens, all of these scholars uh, to contribute to this volume? And what was, let's say, your work uh, uh, as, a, as a modern, maybe uh, scribe editor in organizing uh, the volume around the, the theme? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we, so we initially, we, we organized a workshop at the um, Institute of Historical Research in London in 2018. That's when I was a fellow there. And um, we, I think we, we brought the initial group that contributed to that workshop, we brought together through um, personal acquaintance. So I knew Nur Sebastian and I knew um, 
Darwin's can, for example. Um, Stefan was uh, was a knew Adam Murphy. Um, I also knew Torsten Rolliner. So it was we had friendships and colleagues we had worked with in the past, and we knew that they um, that some of their work sort of related to to color films. All these scholars do um, do other things as well. Um, so that was the that was the initial group personal acquaintances and then we looked at other people um who we didn't know beforehand but who yeah we 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 realized um focused their research primarily on collisions like david sakarian for example who is um, who were, was a postdoc um back then at oxford and worked on a huge amount of armenian collisions so that was the initial group then some people dropped out of that group and we added other people we wanted to add um, a lot more people to also look at um, East Asia, for example, which was not possible. So we uh, we sort of have a, a focus on more Europe, uh, West Asia, South Asia in this volume, I think. We got one scholar who worked on or works on um, Arabic manuscripts from um, from Africa, from Timbuktu, um, uh, Susanna Monenschliteras. Uh, so. It was great that we could we could add her contribution to to, to broaden our geographical focus a bit, um, and yeah, all those contributors were then willing to contribute their case studies to this to this volume, which was great. All right, uh, looking at the periodization from fourteen hundred to uh, eighteen hundred, can you say something about why this periodization, and does it say something about the flourishment, let's say, of manuscript cultures? Uh, or does it covers the scholarship given in the volume? Like, how can we think about this periodization in also different regions? Um, yes, I think that the periodization issue um, is always a, a, a an element of, of contention and debate. Um, so I think with most of the contributions, with the contributions we had to this volume, that fourteen hundred to eighteen hundred makes sense as um as um when we look at manuscript cultures of course we have print cultures in different parts of the world at that point but even with print cultures often we have the the element of the colorful um that still appears or a handwritten colorful even sometimes so i think 1400 to 1800 was um a periodization which we chose in order to to make um to make those different contributions relatable to each other, but also to make it relatable to other to other scholarly work out there. So to um, to label this this volume as, as early modern because it ties into um, a lot of scholarly debates about the early modern or the, the early model the global early modernity, uh, the early modern world at that point in the global connections, transregional connections that we can find. So while we all look at individual um, regions or, or contexts, um, I hope that the the cumulative um, effect of this volume is to show that that there are actually connections and exchanges happening at that point, and that those tie into um, globalizing tendencies across the early modern world. When we look at you know rising the rise of bureaucracies. Uh, state formation processes, um, the movement of scholars, um, the movement of knowledge 
um, and so on. Yeah. And and reading these chapters coming from different archives and libraries and and colorful cultures, uh, do you find that the introduction of print have altered these established traditions in certain regions versus others, or they coexisted alongside print? Um, that's that's a question which I find difficult to answer because I've never immersed myself in the uh, in in the study of print culture um, to that extent. So that's probably a question that Stefan Hans could answer better, since he is uh, he is more he has worked or worked with print printed materials and print cultures from early modern Europe more. So I don't want to say anything that probably wouldn't make sense. Sorry. That's fair. Uh, in studying the colophons, you've mentioned that we can study them individually or collectively, and that will give us different answers to different questions. What are some of the approaches and methodologies employed by these different authors in the volume? Um, so, for example, um, again, coming coming back to um, to Nur Sobaskar, um, in her case, she looked at colophons in manuscripts of what is called the Delhi Collection today, um, a corpus of manuscripts housed, uh, a corpus of manuscripts housed in the British Library among the India Office collections. And what she did is she looked at um, colophons of, of Arabic, Persian, and Urdu manuscripts and realized that the same scribe appears across all three languages. So she was able to discern a, a personal collection within that larger collection. So I think the colophons on the one hand can be used to look at provenance history, of course, um, to look at where those manuscripts are coming from, but then also show that a lot of the collections that we consider collections or archival holdings today are actually put together um, or actually consist of several smaller sub-collections. Um, so the colophon actually helps us to to achieve some diachronic di diachronic depth of of um, the profile of those of those collections, identify individual uh, personal collections, and then trace how they how they might have ended up together. So um, on the one hand, a biographical approach or biographical methodology, um, identifying man manuscripts belonging to to one person, that is one um, that is one methodology. The other one is um, coming back to Jeanette is considering the colophon as a as a crucial paratext or as a paratextual element, which negotiates between um, the reader and the writer and um, or, the, or the, the reader and the copyist and sort of presenting presenting the book or the manuscript to a reader. That's that's another one. Um, but also in terms of how our books are framed as cultural artifacts or as cultural objects. So I think we can we can use um, I'm a historian I'm by training and I think we can use colorfuls as um, in, in our methodologies of, of social history um, in cultural history and um, history of material cultures and objects. In addition to the introduction you also contributed a chapter chapter 2 uh, Persopography and Circulation 
uh, advertising travel uh, travels in Arabic manuscripts across early modern South Asia. Can you tell us about this chapter and what are your main findings? So, um, a lot of the, the the describes that I encountered in Arabic manuscripts in Indian archives, they are not. Um, I can't find them in other prosopographical materials. So, uh, to explain that, when I look at 15th century Egypt, very often scholars included scribes or um, high-standing scholars, um, lower-standing scholars in, in their biographical work. Um, when it comes to South Asia in this period in the 15th and 16th century, it's um, we don't have that same prosopographical literature. So. I thought um, those colophons are often the only way for scribes to um, present themselves, to make themselves heard, or at least to to make themselves known to readers and other scholars. And then I looked at how how those uh, how those colophons were formatted, and more and more it seemed like a lot of those or many of those colophons looked like they've been formatted in a particular way, um, so that um, it catches it catches the eye when you look at the colophon page. So one part of the colophon would include all the information about the text that was copied and sort of how it was copied and then it was ensured that the copy was sound. But then another part of the colophon included the name of the scribe and then sort of his his background. And so um, what I try what I argue with this chapter is that those colophons are they become a prosopography in circulation because the scribes knew or hoped that those manuscripts would circulate, uh, change hands between scholars, and thus ensure that they are not only remembered, but maybe also asked to uh, to produce another manuscript in the future. So it was also advertising, um, advertising one's job um, in in completing or finishing a manuscript um, to potential customers, um, in that way. Can you give us examples uh, of these copyists? Uh, maybe uh, they illustrate, you know, a typical copyist uh, in the covered period. Who are they? Where they come from? What sort of initiation and education they receive to be a copyist? And and what do we mean really by a professional copyist in that sense? Okay, so um. Mostly, we don't know what kind of um, education those those copyists had. At least, not in not in my case. What I know very often is is from, and that is based on how those copyists present themselves. Um, they consider it important to know that they have um, that um, they live in a in a particular place. So I have I have scribes or copies, for example, in the Deccan from Burhanpur, from Bijapur, from Hyderabad. Um, they make clear what their um, Sufi affiliation is. Sometimes, if they um, are disciples of Murids or Sheikhs of, uh, of the Sufi order, they make clear um, sometimes where they where they live um, and sort of which community is, is important to them. They often add their Mathab affiliation, whether they're Hanafi or Shafi. And in some cases, one of the most interesting um, conifants that I found was uh, by a scribe who had copied um, a text, I think it was an Islamic law text, um, in front of the Kaaba in Mecca. 
And so he added he added that phrase in the colophon saying that he copied it in front of the Kaaba and Mecca. So, um, which is obviously um, makes this, uh, adds a lot of um, symbolic importance, um, religious importance to, to, to that manuscript, identifying, first of all, or locating oneself close to the Kaaba, locating oneself close to Mecca, um, and so in a place where lots of scholars uh, pass through. So um, those are the things that, that we can know about those scribes. But um, the scribes that I engaged with or the copyists, we don't know anything about their sort of educational background in, in that sense. Yeah. Th that's useful. Thank you for that. Um, most of the scholarship that we have now on South Asia and its uh, manuscript cultures comes from the Persianite. Uh, studies and Persianite world. Uh, if we were to think about sketching the history of the so-called Arabic cosmopolis in South Asia, how would you sketch that history? When does it start and what's its peak uh, in South Asia? Uh, look, that's, uh, that's a good question. So first of all, um, the, 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 the crucial work obviously is Ronald Ritchie's um, Islam translated, the book which introduces this idea of the Arabic cosmopolis based on Sheldon Pollock's work on the Sanskrit cosmopolis. Um, I find or when I when I worked on my um, on my dissertation, um, which dealt with, with Arabic manuscript circulation, I found Arabic cosmopolis um, a useful term, a useful heuristic uh, tool to look at um, the spread of Arabic learning across the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, and I think what I could identify is that an Arabic cos cosmopolis, and in my case, I would mean an Arabic uh, sphere of Arabic learning, um, really spread um, from the 15th century onwards um, more deeply across regional and local settings in, in South Asia. And I can identify that because with the, um, with the downfall of the Delhi Sultanate, um, and the provincial, provincialization of the, the Delhi Sultanate. In the 15th century, we see the, um, the rise of regional courts across South Asia. And those regional courts, they, um, they patronized scholars from across the Indian Ocean world, mainly the Western Indian Ocean world, probably. So we have scholars from Egypt, from Iran, from the Hejaz, from Yemen, Going to um, going to South Asia, Asia to teach, and so at at that point, biographical dictionaries give us um, some some information about the spread of texts and the spread the movement of people uh, to South Asia. So we actually see a spread of Arabic learning and Arabic texts in that period. And so over the 16th and 17th centuries, we have several courtly formations. Um, the Deccan Sultanates, for example, the Mughals, who um, some of them patronize Arabic learning. They um, build or create royal libraries which hold uh, a lot of Arabic manuscripts, and thus they become repositories for scholarly groups to access. Um, yeah, so that's that's maybe a sketch. So I would I would set it. I would start in the 15th century. But that's because of how I looked at, at the Western Indian Ocean. That's because of the sources I looked at, the biographical dictionaries. 
Arabic existed earlier, of course, already in, in, in South Asia and there along the Malabar coast, um, in Gujarat, on the Konkani coast, and in other places, we already have, have Arabic um, manuscripts. We have communities who speak um, or teach in, in Arabic. Um, but I think what, what's, a, what's a big change that's happening is the 15th century and the combination of trading links, new places of patronage, um, and people who are there to, to move around across the Western Indian Ocean. I think that gives a, that is a, is a big shift and that brings in um, a lot more scholarly groups or learned communities to South Asia who work with Arabic. Well, uh, would you say that history also mirrors what some historians like Sebastian Prange are good for Monson Islam versus a, a Persianite Islam in the North? And did that result in different manuscript cultures when tied more closely, let's say, to Arabia versus uh, Persia and Central Asia? Did that influence the way Arabic manuscripts were produced as well? So um, I think um, in, in, in my case, I would, I would say the the Arabic manuscripts that I looked at in in Hyderabad, for example, and the collection from Bijapur that I looked at, um, you can see that the selection of texts are slightly different from the texts that I encountered when I looked at uh, collections in Lucknow, in the north, or in, in the Rampur, the Rampur Raza Library. Um, but that's considering considering Arabic manuscript collections. So I haven't looked at Persian manuscript collections in long detail. So I think there is a difference in terms of which texts um, were more were more widely circulated or read. Um, but I I think so on the one hand, the, the monsoon Islam discussed by Sebastian Kame is is a great way of of um, contextualizing different Islamic practices across the Indian Ocean and, and looking at Malabar in particular and the particular formation of, of Islamic practices um, or, or in Islamic culture. Um, but at the same time, I, I think um, I'm never sure uh, to what extent I know how to answer that. Um, so I think there's there's probably um, a different word as he has shown, there are different uh, Islamic cultures in in North India, um, but to what extent that that shapes the manuscript cultures is something that I couldn't that I couldn't answer at that point beyond beyond the fact that I identified different textual corpora. But yeah, that would need more work, I think. Yeah, I was curious about whether, let's say, calligraphy, stylistics. Uh, ornamentation, you know, these paratextual uh, elements that incorporate certain traditions from, let's say, Yemen and the Hejaz versus the ones coming from uh, Persia and Central Asia and the Indus Valley, uh, whether there are, you know, differences in the Arabic manuscripts uh, that could be studied. Um, I guess, yeah, we need definitely more research on this. And speaking of research, um, you relatively recently finished your dissertation. So, what advice would you have to graduate students who are interested in pursuing the study of Arabic manuscripts in South Asia? Uh, what sort of opportunities, but also challenges they would have to consider? Uh, so first of all, um, I think there are so many opportunities um, 
empirical opportunities, I think, in in South Asia, in, in India in particular. I haven't worked in in Pakistan yet. Um, I, I would like to do that in the future, but there are so many collections in South Asia which have not been looked at um, by by um, scholars from from across the world. So, um, I mean, some places like like Patna, they receive um, they have scholars who work there. Um, some places like the Rampuraza Library or the Salajang in Hyderabad. But compared to what what is stored in these places in terms of Persian and Arabic manuscripts. Only very little work has been done. So I think there are great opportunities to explore the, the histories of those collections, um, the provenance history of the manuscripts, but then also the history of those institutions and how they were set up over the 18th, 19th, uh, 20th century. Um, there is, there's a lot of literary history that would still need to be done in Arabic, um, the study of um Islamic law, but also tafsir. We have lots of uh, important uh, Quranic commentaries being produced in, in, in South Asia in the early modern period. There are scholars such as Arasya um, Koti, who was a scholar at the, at the Mughal court um, under Shah Jahan. He has several commentaries that he writes about um, in, in Arabic philology, which have not been studied in, in detail yet. So I think um, the the archives in India or the manuscript collections in India, they offer a lot of um, a lot of material to explore uh, the history of scholarship, the history of literature, um, social and cultural histories, but also the history of the book uh, in India. And that's only talking about Arabic and Persian, of course. The materials in other languages as well. Right, and since this is a podcast on the Indian Ocean world. Uh, what would you say about the potential of uh, these manuscripts uh, for writing in Indian Ocean history? In what way would they uh, help us as sources uh, to think about the history of the Indian Ocean? So I think um, uh, Indian Ocean history has been um, has been growing as a field, or has grown as a field over the last the last decades. Um, and I think there's there's so much great work on material cultures of the Indian Ocean, slavery, um, but the the biggest um, aspect so far has been the economic history of the Indian Ocean world um, in the early modern period and into the modern period as well. Then, of course, um, study of of migration um, of religious cultures of the Indian Ocean, and I think what manuscripts can offer us for the early modern and for the modern period is writing histories of of knowledge transmission, uh, of knowledge circulation, and writing social and cultural histories of, of communities which inhabit who inhabited the Indian Ocean, um, but who did not necessarily inhabit the Indian Ocean for the sake of trade or or uh, commercial ventures. So I think manuscripts of different of different languages but allow us to write um, to write an Indian Ocean history which looks at um, culture, knowledge, um, and and the book as as important elements of of the human human condition and human life. And I think also the economic you know uh, driven history of the Indian Ocean can also 
interact in productive ways with the cultural and thinking also about the books as objects and their own right about institutions that are supporting these manuscript cultures and uh, how you know notions of capitalism can also translate to uh, to cultural history um mm-hmm. so they definitely could complement each other in productive ways yeah yeah i agree definitely so who do you hope will will read the uh, scribal practice uh and uh, what sort of impact would you like it to have in the world um i think i think i'd be happy if um if if scribal if that book is read by our students of of the history of the book um of manuscript study and in particular if it's read by by students who do not work or focus on on the field um, that the contributors and, and the editors have worked on. So I would I would hope um, that the volume is read by people outside of the of the fields that the contributors and editors are in. That would be great. Yeah, I, I second that, and I think it's really a great starting point uh, for anyone interested in manuscript cultures. The introduction is quite rich in conceptual frameworks and approaches to the study of manuscripts and the different chapters give you a d- different take and approach to uh, to, to the study of uh, manuscript uh, colophons. And I couldn't tell but to notice that the volume also ends with uh, a colophon of its own right. So how did you decide uh, what to include in this uh, colophons at the end of the manuscript? <laughs> well, that's that could, that's of course, uh, um, that created its, its own study. So I think, um, uh, Stefan had the idea of including the colophon. I thought it was a great idea to to do that, and so we we finished our our draft for for the publishers uh, during the pandemic in 2020. So I think um, we tried to copy a certain style or imitate a certain style of writing it, and of course the the format is it, it's it's um, set in a in a similar way. And I think uh, we just wanted to include everything that we thought was important for how this volume came about. So the fact of how we how we met as as the two editors, how we engaged with the with the contributors, and how this is really a collaborative work. Um, and so much thinking has has gone into this volume, um, which comes from the uh, contribu- contributors. So yeah, I think we wanted to um, make it a, a social act to come and and show um, what the volume meant to us uh, in terms of social, scholarly, and cultural encounters that we had over the last years. I thought that's brilliant, and I think everyone should do the same. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and we've learned a lot from you about the themes of the book and its different chapters. And now we move to our last traditional question, which is, uh, what are you working on now or hope to work on in the future? Ah, thank you. Yeah. So at, at the moment I'm working on um on a on a Sayyid from, from Medina who was a custodian of the Prophet's mosque and who leaves the Prophet Prophet's mosque in the sixteenth century and becomes a um a scholar in court in, in Ahmed Nagar and one of the Japanese Sultanate. Uh, um I wanna write two articles, one about his role in Ahmed Nagar, um, he writes a biographical dictionary in Arabic, which updates Ibn Khalikal's 
biographical dictionary from the 13th century or the 16th century. So this is really a Dutch um, transmission of knowledge um, aspect. But he does that at, at the court in Ahmed Nagar um, after the court has shifted from a, a Sunni Hanafi paradigm to a, an imami um, imami um, paradigm. So I want to look at what what this imami paradigm or um, courtly patronage means to to a Sayyid, because in in modern um, historiography is considered a she, and I think that those dichotomies don't really work very well for the 16th century. So I want to find out what his Sayyid descent allows him to do um, to affiliate himself to court with an imami a mashab kind of affiliation. Um, and then also the other article would be on on Medina and what role um, what role his his um, patronage that he receives in the Dekal uh, plays in Medina. And and I wanna I want to do that because on the one hand um, there's very little research on the early modern Hijaz, in particular on early modern Medina, um, and there is still a lot of work that needs to be done in the the transoceanic connections that. Um, the Dekab had in the early modern period. So I want to continue on on different themes uh, that I find in the Indian Ocean and in the early modern Indian Ocean world in that point. And yeah, those are sort of two things that I'm working on at the moment. That sounds fascinating. And I look forward to reading your work. Uh, what about the, the dissertation? Are you working on uh, trans transforming it into a book or you're planning on other things? Yeah, so the, the dissertation is going to come out as a book um, inshallah next year um, it will be entitled um, Mobile Manuscripts um, Arabic Learning Across the Early Modern Western Indian Ocean and um, I've, I'm, it's in the last stages of the, the process um, so um, I hope that it will be out um, by next year and then I can move on to, to other things as well we're definitely going to have you back on the podcast then Congratulations on having uh, the book coming soon. And thank you so much for giving us this time to talk about the volume. Uh, and thank you for the listeners to, for tuning in uh, to listen to today's episode in which we explored um, scribal practice and the global cultures of colophons between 1400 to 1800 published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.